Good morning. Good to, to see you guys here this morning. I know that there's quite a few people sick, and uh, some are away on holiday. So do pray for them and <coughs> encourage those who are under the weather. For those of you men who are available, um, it's the 29th, I believe, uh, Saturday morning, we plan to continue our discussion on theology. Uh, this time it will be on the Holy Spirit, and then following that, you don't have to stay, but if you are interested, we will have a class on uh, the basics of Greek, and uh, I'm not sure how long that will go. I'm, I'm trying to keep it uh, to at least uh, six weeks. But uh, if you are interested in that, uh, I uh, do encourage you to come to that as well. Please open your Bibles to James chapter 3. <clears throat> Ecclesiastes 7.12 says, For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the adv uh, advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves life or the life of him who has it. I think it's safe to say that many Christians are accustomed to thinking through worldly, natural <coughs> wisdom. The church has fallen prey to a plethora of pragmatic pastors and worldly methodologies in the proclamation of the gospel. We employ business management in church leadership because we think it works. We measure our effectiveness by how the world responds to the church. We think that psychology is counseling. We think that psychology walks hand in hand with the Bible and is able to help the people of God. Many Christians have a Christian psychological methodology when it comes to counseling. We presume that the government knows best what is good for parents, parenting, and preaching. There are few areas where, these are just a few areas where the church is employing worldly wisdom. We wonder why there's so much turmoil in the body of Christ. Now this does not mean that Christians do not make bad choices. You, as well as I do, know that we do make bad choices all the time. What I'm talking about is the church bowing to an ideological warfare that is taking place. The world does not love Christ. And so the worldview of the world exists to break down our relationship with Christ, to break down our belief in Christ, to break down our dependence upon Christ. And Christians are caving and have caved in to natural cultural narratives. We regurgitate social standards as if it is truth. For instance, Many Christians support the socialistic pyramid scheme, which is known as BLM. We buy into failing social justice systems and the language of equity. 
we do not accept the sovereignty of God, yet we proclaim it with our mouths. Today, more and more Christians are buying into the cult of environmentalism. Just speak to people. Speak about the earth having, quote-unquote, environmental challenges. We talk about gender-based violence and yet ignore the violence done to women on the hunting plane of the internet. We refuse to acknowledge the holocaust of abortion. We talk about human rights, but at the same time, we cannot break away from companies who dehumanize humans by supporting, transitioning, and fund abortion. We support rejecting racism, but turn a blind eye to reverse racism. Saints, we have fallen prey to cultural, ungodly, earthly, demonic wisdom. The one that is finding the most traction in the church of Jesus Christ is the invasion of the happy community. You know what I'm talking about, right? When a church has caved to have trans people in any form of public ministry, it has abandoned the truth for a lie. There are churches in Cape Town that have worship leaders where men are dressing up as women. I'm sorry, that church has left the authority of God's word and has bowed to the demonic wisdom of this world. Today, Christians think through race. We think through climate. We think through government. We think through social standards while holding and tether to claim that we believe in the authority of the word of God. That is not wisdom from above, but that is following foolhardy wisdom that comes from this world. All the while, wisdom is crying out to us. The Bible tells us, on so many levels, to be wise. It warns us on so many levels to follow Christ and not the world. Let me take it from this ivory tower theological talk down to the level where we live. The Bible tells us to avoid the loud woman. It tells us to avoid the lazy sluggard of a son. It tells us to avoid the woman that compromises and is tempting you to compromise away from the path of righteousness. It tells us to think wisely of the son who refuses to work. Solomon says, little does he know that the dead lie there and her guests are caught in Sheol. If she captures you with your eyes, she will drag you down to death is what Solomon says. It warns us of sensuality, how to 
wisely manage our finances, how to honor God with our time. And what do we do? We ignore those things. The Bible tells us to be aware of the one who says, a little sleep and a little slumber, before you know it, is overrun by poverty and passions. It informs us of the danger and the disgust of discrimination. Both Old and New Testament speaks about this. It guides us how to love our neighbors and how to care for our families. It tells us how to guard our hearts against the invasion of this world. Often women are caught in a loveless marriage and they suffer under a brute. Why? Because they ignored the signs when they were dating. They did it because of puppy love. And now they live a dog's life. You'll get that later. (laughs) Women, don't ignore the signs. If he's behind, he's only getting out of bed at 12. That is who he is. If he's lazy now, he's not going to change until the grace of God dawns upon him and he comes to understand the word of God. If he's not committed to the word of God now, don't ignore the signs. You are signing up for a life of pain and suffering for the sake of love. Proverbs deals with these things. And too often we look the other way. We are warned about a man who does not think that he will burn if he picks up coals. That's a fool. What's the thought behind that analogy? It deals with passions and partnerships. How can a married man think he is safe if he surrounds himself constantly with unmarried women? That's a fool. How can a married man take single ladies into the wee hours of the morning? That's a fool. Playing with coals is waiting for an opportunity to get burned. That's that's the wisdom of Proverbs. He tells us, listen, if you have any sense, if you pick up a coal, what's going to happen? You're going to burn, right? That's the logical result of that analogy. If you put coals in your lap, what is going to happen? You will burn. He's speaking about your passions. If you play with fire, what's going to happen? You will get burned, right? Well said. How then can we think we are wiser than God when we play with fire? How can a married woman think she is safe when she surrounds herself with unbelieving, ungodly, godless men? You are playing with coals. Proverbs says, How can a man take coals in his bosom and not be burnt? Wisdom is required in every avenue and corridor of our lives. When we think of wisdom, we think uh, in terms of making wise decisions. Mostly it relates to 
financial matters, but wisdom impacts every aspect of our thought life and our act life. Finances, feelings, fellowship, friends, family. God has adequately provided pearls of wisdom throughout His Word to guide us into a life and a pathway that will honor Him. And what do we do? We ignore those pearls and we follow the swine. How can we honor the Lord if we do not digest the Word of God? What about church? Church has been inundated with faulty views of social justice, self-esteem, personal rights, mixed with a little sprinkling of the gospel. We have downgraded truth to personal opinion. We have allowed subjectivity, liberalism, pragmatism, and passivism to dominate the pulpit of God. We have men in the pulpit that will not call out sin because they fear losing people. Because they fear having a bad reputation in the community. Why does this happen? Because we've fallen prey to the wisdom of the world and we've become fearers of men rather than fearers of God. What is wisdom? The fear of the Lord is what? Wisdom. We have many examples in Scripture. Yet, we see so many examples today of church splits and disunity that comes from disputes that do not result from theological debates or disagreements. But there are the personal ones with a dash of religiosity. What I mean is, They want to make the argument theological or biblical. For instance, there are those who are fighting for breastfeeding and they make a big deal about it. There are those who are adamant about homeschooling. Listen, we homeschool. But it's not a law in the scriptures. You cannot find a Bible verse to say you must homeschool. There are those who are fighting for the right to diet. Stay away from this and and eat only this. Uh, I don't know, but have you read Colossians? That is following the wisdom of the world, the philosophy of the world, not God's word. People have church splits over those things, believe it or not. That is foolishness. It's amazing how people grab at Scripture to support a lifestyle or a personal belief. This is not wisdom from above. This is wisdom manifesting, earthly wisdom manifesting itself in selfishness, self-centeredness, and self-pleasing, self-justifying activity. All that to say, we are sometimes prone to wander down the path of earthly wisdom that does not honor God. We are all prone to that. We may not realize that earthly wisdom in the church of Jesus Christ will cause turmoil and will promote all manner of evil behavior. In verse 16 of James chapter 3, we see the fetid fruits of worldly 
wisdom. Next time, we will look at the fruitful fruits of heavenly wisdom. When we use earthly wisdom, we follow the impulses of the heart, we are not directed or controlled by the Word of God, and we vandalize the unity amongst the community of faith. James in 3.16 provides two results that come from earthly, natural, demon-like wisdom. That child needs wisdom. <laughs> Which can be perceived in chaos and compromised living. These are the two points that we will look at this morning. Worldly wisdom results in chaos and compromise. Now let's give attention to James chapter 3, verse 16. I'm going to back up and read from verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and lie against the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly and spiritual demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Notice how James reveals the source and then the outcome. What is the source? Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, what is the outcome? There will be disorder and every vile practice. Now, verse 16 begins with an echo back to verse 14. There's a repetition, and you should be able to see that pretty easily. Uh, verse 14 says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, and then verse 16 for where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, um, those two nouns are repeated for a very specific reason. So what James is doing is he's recalling what is just mentioned in verse 14. Now, he doesn't have to re uh, uh, repeat the entire phrase for him to repeat the entire phrase. He's trying uh, to help them understand that he's still connecting to the issue of the heart. So go back to verse 14. Notice what he says. If you have, so if you possess as a normative reality, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart. So that's the entire phrase. That is the entire statement, the entire clause that he wants him to think about. If this is who you are, if this dominates your heart, then this will be true of you. So verse 16 for where jealousy and selfish ambition, that is, uh, it's called an anchor point. So he's going back to verse 14 without mentioning the entirety of verse 14. He wants him to think about what dominates their hearts. So he mentions two things that come from verse 14. Bitten, um, jealousy and selfish ambition. So selfish ambition is actually just one word. So he only mentions the two things. Uh, jealousy and selfish ambition is recalled to indicate that he's still thinking about the heart. So then, if this dominates your heart, then you can be guaranteed that disorder and every vile practice will be true of you. The location and the possession of these two godless activities, jealousy and selfish ambition, 
is your heart. This is very close to what Jesus says in Matthew 15, verse 19, where he says, For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Therefore, this is not only true of you possessing it in your heart, but it manifests a certain type of lifestyle. The heart is revealed by what comes out in conduct. So James connects to verse 14 to highlight the connection to the heart. So what are these two outcomes? What are these two realities that come from a heart that is dominated by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition? Well, it's pretty evident at the end of verse 16. Disorder and every vile practice. Now it is interesting that verse 16 is actually verbless. And I I think what James is doing is he's banking on the verb in verse 14 to carry over into verse uh, 16 because he's, he's hocking back to that idea. But it makes sense without the verse. So let me read it to you without the verb. For where jealousy and selfish ambition, there disorder and every vile practice. Still makes sense, right? You don't have to have the verbs in there for it to make sense. Now, I think what is um, implicit in the verbal idea that is left out is this. For where jealousy and selfish ambition is or as an ongoing reality, a state of being, there will be, without a doubt, disorder and every vile practice. The leaving out of those verbs gives the idea that James is saying that if you have this, you can be guaranteed that these outcomes will be true of you. If your heart is dominated by these two virtues, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, then you will have chaos and a compromised life. So what is he saying? Self-centered hearts that are dominated by earthly wisdom will result in chaos and compromise. I think it's pretty simple. That's the point of the sermon. That's the point of the verse. So everything else is a bonus. So let's give a bit of attention to what he means by um, disorder. So I'm going to spend the rest of the time looking at this last to at least the the two outcomes, the last part of verse 16. Earthly wisdom results in disorderly life. Number one, earthly wisdom results in a disorderly life. The first outcome is seen in the fact that James highlights this chaotic disorder uh, or nature of this person. We know that he is intending to Um, highlight the causative results. Look at the the beginning of verse 16. For where these things exist, jealousy and selfish ambition, for where they are, there will be disorder and every vile practice. This means that the causative effect of having your heart dominated by worldly wisdom will be seen in the following two results. Chaos in your life and corruption in your activity. Now what is meant by this word disorder? It literally means unstable. Now James used this word 
before. Look at chapter 1 and verse 8. <clears throat> now, I think I've, I've shown you the intertextuality of James quite a few times before, and so you should not be surprised by the fact, especially in this thematic peak, um, that he's going back to previously mentioned uh, discussions or themes. Look at verse 8. Uh, I'm going to back up to 7. For that person, the double-minded person, the, the person who, um, uh, who uh, lacks wisdom, that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable, that is the word, unstable in all his ways. That is instability as a condition. That is who he is by nature. This unstable person is marked by disorder and does not bear the marks of salvation. Chapter 1, verse 8, speaks of an unbeliever. If you were here for that, you will remember that. I know that there are those who think he's talking about a very disobedient uh, believer here, a rich uh, believer, but he's not. He's talking about a person that will be judged by God and removed and fade away in the process of pursuing riches. Interestingly, in verse 5, James speaks about asking for wisdom. And then in verse 8, he says, well, those who lack wisdom, those who live uh, and were tossed to and fro, who are double-minded, two-souled, those who go this way and that way, they are the unstable people. They are the double-minded. Keep that word in, word in your mind. They are double-minded. They are unstable, notice, in all their ways. It is a condition that is revealed in a variety of different ways in every aspect of that person's life. This person is not a believer and he is not steadfast. He's a volatile, unpredictable, uh, unpredictable, erratic individual. He cannot help but be unstable. Why? Because he's not anchored down by faith, but he's imbalanced because of his self-reliant trust. This rich man banks on his riches. This rich man thinks that he's able to make it through hard times and make it through difficulty because of who he is and where he, uh, he is in life. And James says, no, you will eventually fade just like your riches. You will perish. This man, James says, must not think that he will receive anything from the Lord. In other words... He does not have the ear of God. That is not a believer. Why? Because he trusts in himself, he trusts in his riches, he trusts in his accomplishments, and not God. As his life goes, so does his faith. When life is good, he is all there, full in 100%, but when life is bad, he is nowhere to be seen. This person is far from God. Secondly, James recalls in chapter 3, verse 8, that the unstable tongue is equal to the unstable heart. I'm still going back to where he's used it before. Take note in verse 7. For every 
kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed. We've got the divine uh, create, creation demand and command to or mandate to control the world and everything in it. And he has um, and has been tamed. That's the animal world has been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. In other words, really, you can't even tame the tongue. You can control an animal, but not the tongue. This is what he says of the tongue. It is a restless, same word, evil, full of deadly poison. As his heart is, so his tongue will be. In verse chapter 1, verse 8, as his heart is, so his life will be. In chapter 3, verse 8, as his heart is, so his tongue will be. You can see the consistency through which James uses this word. This guy, this individual, is unruly, is disorderly, is chaotic in heart. Because in that heart, the God of peace is not present. If you remember back, I was pointing out that these words are never used of believers, but only of an unbeliever. Restless evil and full of deadly poison. In both cases, those two uh, intertextual cases, James highlights the certainty of this individual. This is who he is by nature. He acts a certain way. He's unstable in his life because that is who he is in his heart. He's unstable in the use of his tongue because that is who he is in his heart. And now he uses it again in chapter 3, verse 16, to demonstrate that this person, the unstable person in life is this way because this is by nature who he is. In this context, chapter 3, 16, he's talking about the result of natural wisdom, the result of earthly wisdom, the result of demon-like wisdom. This kind of person does not walk in accordance with the word of God, does not follow the righteousness of God, but follows his own path. He does not have peace in his heart. He does not have stability in his life. But he is marked by chaos and disorder in every sphere and aspect of his life. Why? Because so is his heart. Why does this sound so familiar to faith? Close to faith. Why is it so close to faith? You will see that if you read the book of Proverbs, that the same resonance is found in Proverbs. The presence of wisdom is comparable, but not equal to, I want to be sure that you understand that, it is comparable with the presence of faith. Those who have wisdom from God are those who have faith from God. Those who walk in a life of righteousness have been granted the gift of living a life of righteousness. Those who are able to make wise decisions that honor God are those who've been enabled to believe in God. Now, wisdom is not equal to faith because wisdom cannot what? Save. So I I, want to be sure that you understand that. I'm not saying that they are equal, but it's comparable. Where there is a lack of wisdom that comes from God, there too there is a lack of faith that comes from God. It is interesting that Jesus understands the connection between faith and wisdom 
this way as well. Matthew 7, verse 24. Listen, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, that is the net result of saving faith, who hears these words of mine and does them, will be like a wise man who has built his house on a rock. Faith is comparable to wisdom, but not equal to wisdom. Think of the examples of faithful men and women in Scripture. Hannah, Daniel, Stephan, or Stephen as we say, Moses. What then of the fool who builds his house on the sand? He's comparable to one who does not have what? Saving faith. That's the analogy that Jesus brings in Matthew chapter 7. Those who believe in me, who follow my word, those who um, are my disciples, they are like wise, a wise man who builds his house on a rock. But those who do not believe and do not obey and do not follow me, they are like the fool who builds his mansion on the sand. He does not have wisdom. Earthly wisdom is self focused and self-satisfying. It looks inward, but true godly wisdom looks Godward. The one is of faith and the other is without faith. James shows that faith works by means of wise acts of righteousness that demonstrates a heart that has been humbled by the grace of God and therefore is wise in its activity. The unstable mind, the unstable man, and the unstable heart that James has in view, this disorder that he has in view here, is a person that is far from God. It should not define a believer. Therefore, a person that does not have the wisdom that comes from, from God is a person who lacks saving faith in God. Look down at verse 17. Notice the contrasting qualities of those who are of God. But the wisdom from above, now I'm not going to explain that now because it does go back uh, to chapter 1 and I want to reserve that for uh, that uh, sermon. But notice what it says. But the wisdom from above, which relates to God giving you the wisdom as he also gives you salvation, the same God bro provides both faith and um, wisdom that wisdom that comes as a part uh, of the giving of faith is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, then open to reason. Notice what he says after this. Full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. He is not marked by disorder, but by peace, but by doing good things. Believers are not given to instability, chaos, and disorder. That is antithetical to saving faith. On the other hand, wisdom that comes from uh, God provides stability, clarity, and immovability. What we have here in James chapter 3, in this middle section, the end section, I call it middle because it's between um, 
two exhorting passages, chapter 4, beginning of chapter 4, and, and the beginning of chapter 3. So in my mind, it's middle, but the end of chapter 3, you, you know what I mean. What we have here in um, this New Testament passage is equivalent to what Solomon does in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Proverbs. James contrasts the qualities of a person who knows God, who possesses wisdom from God, with one who does not know God and therefore does not possess wisdom that comes from God. This does not mean that believers will not make unwise decisions. This does not mean that believers are not influenced by improper, unfitting, and inadequate um, wisdom that leads to a manner of life that dishonors God. James is not only pointing out the error of earthly, natural, and demon-like wisdom, but also in the same stroke warning believers away from that kind of life. In other words, this should not be true of God's people. Let that sink in. Disorder and chaos should not be true of God's people. So then, if earthly wisdom is self-absorbed, self-gratifying, self-exalting, what does that kind of person need? He needs to submit or be humbled. Look at chapter 4, verse 6. I'm going to read from verse 5, and there's an echo back to where we are now. Do you not suppose it is... Um, it is to no purpose that the scripture says he jealously yearns over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud. What James describes in chapter 3 verse 13 to 18 in the negative is the character and the quality of the proud person. Notice what he says. God opposes such a person. He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you, take note of this word, double Minded, where do you see that word? Chapter 1, verse 8. And that related to an unbeliever. The unstable man is a double-minded man. And notice what he says. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your, uh, your hearts, you double-minded. And be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter, your rejoicing now be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. You know what that is? That's a call to repentance to those Jews in the synagogue who's um, glorying in the fact that they have God as their God but have no relationship with Jesus Christ as Lord. And he says, bow the knee to the Lord. How do I know that? Look at verse 10. 
Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Who's the Lord? Go back to chapter 2, verse 1, and you will find out who the Lord is. Who's the Lord? Go back to chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, and you will know who the Lord is. James is saying, if you want to have a relationship with God, don't glory in what you know or what you think you have. Bow before him who is Lord. For this reason, due to their spiritual condition, they have instability. They are those who have disorder and chaos dominating their lives. What is true of them on an individual level is also true of them on a communal level. Now you may not have picked this up, but James actually dealt with disorder in this community. Anybody remember where that is? In chapter 2, if a person comes into your synagogue, what happens? Go stand over there or sit at my feet. James demonstrates the disunity and the chaos that results from a heart that is filled by uh, with wisdom from below and not from above. They cause problems in the community of faith. Why? Because they don't have wisdom from God. This is why you cannot have unbelievers voting or even having a voice in the church of Jesus Christ. They don't share our desire to honor the Lord. They don't share our vision for the glory of God. So why would they have a voice in the church of Jesus Christ? The instability and disorder of this community here in James is, is reduced to one thing, that the hearts of some of these people are dominated by wisdom from below. It is interesting that in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 33, Paul says this, God is not for God is not of order, of disorder, but of peace. I know it sounds wrong because I left out the words. It's not in the original. But listen again. For God is not of disorder, but of peace. He's not the origin of disorder. It doesn't come from him. It comes from us. God does not cause disorder. God causes peace. Disorder in the body of Jesus Christ does not come because God so wills it. It comes because our hearts are focused on self and not our Savior. If we only care about ourselves and not God's people, we cause disunity. Chapter 2. When we express our own wills by neglecting others, it will cause disunity. Chapter 2. The internal turmoil of this community is reduced to the problem of the one who does not have Christ reigning as Lord in his heart. This is why they have a problem. They are not filled with faith. 
they are filled with self. Listen, unity of the faith, which Paul speaks about in Romans and Ephesians, unity of the faith must also mean unity of the saints. Does, does that make sense? If we have unity in what we believe, then we should be working towards the same goal. That is found a lot in the New Testament epistles. But wherever there is disunity in faith, what can you also expect? Disunity amongst the saints. This is why James writes about wisdom from below and the contrast with wisdom from above. Because where wisdom from below dominates, that means that a heart that is unfilled with the faith of God, a heart that is not filled with wisdom from above, is reigning. And that will cause tremendous problems amongst the people of God. A person who claims to be wise and understanding, yet causes turmoil and strife in the church community, is a person that must not only examine his heart, but also his motives. Why is he doing what he's doing? My time is uh, quickly going. I'm just trying to see where I can jump down to. <clears throat> the chaos expressed in the infighting in this book of James is because of the passion of personal self-satisfaction that is not meant. How do I know that? Look at chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? What is he pointing to? The net result of the outward fighting is pointing back to an inward battle. The reason why you have quarreled is because something is wrong with your heart. Your self-gratifying, self-desiring passions are not met. And so you flare out. You burn up people. You fight. You desire and you do not have. So you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And uh, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is alienation or enmity with God? This should not define a child of God, nor the people of God. Eternal turmoil and instability never remains internal. Internal turmoil and instability is the result of an unsatisfied heart. Internal turmoil and instability causes external turmoil and chaos. Remember the greater context here? Chapter one, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers. Teachers who bear the mark of 
being proud, who are envious, they will bulldoze over people. Why? Because they're self-centered. They care more about self than others. As leaders, we have to keep this in mind. God has not given bulldogs to the church. He's given shepherds. He's given people who are supposed to lead, not whip. We are supposed to build up, not break down. We are supposed to help, not hurt. There is a connection between the proud heart and lack of wisdom. The proud refuses to bow down to Christ. The proud does not care about God's people. The proud does not care about the fights and the feuds that they cause. We'll see that in much more detail when we get to chapter 4. So firstly, James shows the negative outcome of earthly wisdom is seen in a chaotic heart, chaotic life, and chaotic nature. Secondly, earthly and demon-like wisdom can be seen in a compromised life. Earthly wisdom results in a compromised life. I have five minutes, so give me opportunity to wrap this up. This can be seen in the last part of verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition, there will be disorder and vile and every vile practice. A wisdom from below that does not have an ounce of purity or holiness does not pro- proceed from God and therefore cannot produce things that will honor God. I think that is obvious. A heart that is filled with self Passion, self-satisfaction is a heart that will not only cause conflict and disorder in the church community, but will also be revealed. It will manifest itself in the pursuit of all manner of sensual practices. This kind of wisdom will lead to total enslavement to sinful and carnal passions. This is exactly what Solomon speaks about, what he warns his sons about. Wisdom of God leads to life. The wisdom of the fool leads to enslavement of all his faculties and eventually results in death. It is so funny to read about the woman that um, we are supposed to avoid. And he says, little does he know, the fool, the foolish son, that at her gate or at her door, the death, the, the dead lie. She gathers the bones of her victims. There, there are so many illustrations of why we need to avoid the adulterous woman. James says that if these virtues dominate your heart, you can be guaranteed that you will be dominated by sinful passions. Notice what he says. Every vile practice. That word oil, all, means every kind of practice. In this case, all does mean all. This is not a specific kind of sensuality. This is all kinds of uh, immoral practices that is in view. 
James shows the effect of a self-centered heart dominated by worldly wisdom. I want you to get this point, that a, a heart that is dominated by worldly wisdom is a heart that is centered on self. A heart that is centered on self is going to pursue selfish passions. You're going to want what you want. That dishonors God. Notice the word practice. Every vile practice. This word could mean matter, not as a chemical element, but um, as a thing or a circumstance. It could mean business, not as a company, but as an activity. For instance, Acts chapter 5, verse 4, you don't have to turn there. Peter says to Ananias, why have you done this matter thing? Business. Do you know what he's talking about, right? When Ananias and Sapphira have concocted this idea to put on display their gracious gift to the church or to the Lord, and they lied about how much they gave. And so Peter presses him on this issue. Why have you done this matter in your heart? What happened? As soon as he heard these words, he fell down and died. Imagine that church discipline experience. Just imagine being in church that day. What have you done, Ananias? Bam, he's dead. Church, we will not have fellowship today, but we will have a funeral. Yeah, it's... Interestingly, what Peter points out is, what have you decided in your heart? He's talking about the heart again. Why have you done this matter in your heart? Why are you lying against the Lord, which is the external demonstration of the condition of the heart? I hope you see it by now. Wherever the heart is, it will not remain in secret for a long time. It demonstrates itself out in activity. And the word matter there is what Peter says. You have done this business in your heart and it reveals itself in your action. Now James, however, qualifies, he provides an adjective of this word matter. He says every vile, every evil matter. That is morally base every worthless vile thing both can speak about a compromise in morality it's an activity that describes a heart that is far from god generally i'll explain what i mean by that it defines a person that is not in submission to God. It delineates a way of life that is antithetical to the wisdom that God provides. And therefore, this life represents a state or a condition that is in compromise and that is compromising. Make sense? Worldly wisdom will lead to moral compromise. When you follow the path of worldly wisdom and ignore the path of righteousness, 
eventually your moral standing starts to degrade. James says, if you have this wisdom, if you have these virtues, dominate your life. Guess what? Chaos and compromise will be manifest. This is why so many marriages fail. This is why there is so much failed purity. This is why there are so many failed relationships. Because we bank on wisdom from below and we do not lean on God. I'm going to give you three uh, ways in which um, the evil practice can be seen. Number one, it can be seen in a way of life. John chapter 3.20, we won't go there. But if you remember the discussion that Jesus has with Nicodemus, he says, for everyone who does wicked things, evil matters, same words as in James, hates the light as a regular habit of life. This person is not a believer. That's a way of life. Secondly, it can be a contrasting new way of life. Speaking about testimony, in Titus chapter 2, Paul says to Titus that nobody should be able to mention any evil thing in our behavior. It should be, our life should be in contrast to that. Others must not be able to point out any compromised moral aspects in our life. It's not fitting for a believer. But thirdly, it is inconsistent with a New Testament believer. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, Paul says this, that every believer will give an account of every deed, whether good or evil. Same word as James uses. It refers to a moral compromise, which implies that believers can follow the path of immorality can follow the path of a moral, compromised life, which means they are banking on wisdom from below and not wisdom from above. And Paul says, we will give an account of that. You will not escape. That doesn't mean that God will judge you, uh, condemn you for your sin, but God will judge you for your disobedience. It's the difference. This way of life that James describes and the other New Testament believe, um, writers as well, this evil practice, compromised life, is definitely, definitively descriptive of an unbeliever. Should not be mentioned amongst God's people. James condemns this kind of life. Proverbs 3 verse 7 says, or at least comments on how a wise man will always do what is wise in his own eyes. A foolish man will always do what is wise in his own eyes. He follows the path of unrighteousness. He follows the path of his passions. And he leaves chaos in his way. The outcome of false wisdom cannot be suppressed. It will manifest itself in both public conduct and also private impurity. What James is showing is the connection between disunity and disorder and a heart that is not set on 
God. This is very re reminiscent of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Have you read that book? And some of you may remember uh, how worldly wise man is a distraction. It draws you away from the path of righteousness. If you haven't read the book, pick it up. That kind of wisdom feeds the flesh. It causes disunity. It causes disruption. It causes disorder. And it causes deviant behavior. This does not come from God. Biblical wisdom is seen in a life that is bowed to the knee to the yoke of Christ and loves him as their king and savior. Wisdom that is demoniacal in its genesis, unspiritual in its passion, earthbound in its scope, is as far from God as you can imagine. It is, it's got no association with God, and that's what verse 17 illustrates. The wisdom from above is drastically different in its nature and in its results. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 12 says, For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Let's pray. Father, we want to echo the words of the songwriter. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God of love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Lord, there are different people in this church today. There are those who are dominated by wisdom from below who do not possess the faith that you give. There are those who have been granted faith but still follow wisdom that is not from above. We pray that your word would do its work and that your spirit would bring conviction in whatever level and area that you need to work, Lord. Save where you need to save and sanctify all of us who are your children. Grant us the ability to pursue the path that you desire for us and help us to put to death the deeds of the flesh that we may honor you in all that we do, in all that we say, in all that we think, and in every way that we act, that you may be honored for your own glory. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.